The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as self-evident. Self-evident. You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Ryan White is our live stream producer. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. And just a reminder, coming up at the bottom of the hour, Adam Borofsky will join us from Warsaw and we'll discuss paranormal Poland. All right, we'll uh, continue this hour to delve into the lost prophecies of Qumran 2025 and the final age of man uh, with Josh Peck. Once again, Josh, uh, tell me a little bit about the the, the two witnesses. Um, there's some dis- discussion or debate as to who these two witnesses are. What role do they play in the end times and who, who do you believe they are? Yeah, um, I'm, I believe one of them has to be Elijah because uh, there's prophecies in the Old Testament about Elijah returning in the end times. Um, the other one, most people think it's either Moses or Enoch. Uh, could be either. I've heard great arguments on both sides, so I'm I'm not fully sure. Right now, I'm kind of leaning towards Moses, but that could be because that just was the uh, last viewpoint that I happened to be studying. When I study more on the Enoch side, I might <laughs> might switch. But the role of these uh, two people, they're 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 human beings, but they have uh, supernatural powers from God. Uh, you know, they can breathe fire against their enemies. Nobody can take these guys out. Their role in the tribulation is to preach the gospel, to to tell people what's going on. You know, this this guy's the Antichrist. This is the tribulation. All all this stuff. They're there to they're there to preach the truth of Jesus. So while they're there, um, apparently, they people try to take them out and try, try to kill them, but they're not they're not able to, but at the end of their ministry, when their ministry is done, the antichrist himself comes and kills the two witnesses. Finally, the two witnesses are, are, are gone. You know, the world is thinking and they're, they're taken up to heaven. Um, so, and then after that, there's an earthquake and, and a lot of people die, but that's, uh, that, that's their main role. Their main function in this tribulation period is to preach the gospel of Christ basically one last time for planet earth. Uh, doesn't it also talk about how, how their their death or execution, if you will, will be seen by everyone all over the world? It almost seems like it's um, prophesizing uh, the advent of television. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think, too, because think about that time of, you know, John's having this vision like 2000 years ago and he needs to write down that the whole world is going to see this event. And there's, he couldn't think how that would even be possible, but he, he was faithful and wrote it down. It's a bold claim. It's a bold thing to predict, but it actually happened. Um, and there's actually a lot around the death of the two witnesses. Uh, we get a lot of prophetic clues and day counts with, with them. So we know how long their ministry is. We know when they'll die, how they'll die. Uh, and obviously no detail is unimportant, but using the Essene calendar, I believe the two witnesses, uh, like I mentioned, show up in the first half of the tribulation. The Antichrist kills the two witnesses after he desecrates the temple, or before he desecrates the temple, probably. Um, so I believe that it's possible that the two witnesses are killed, but when they, but, but then they are raised during the festival of Purim. Uh, and the day counts actually allow for this, um, and it works out in the in the first half. We also know when the two witnesses are killed, people are giving gifts as these bodies lay in the street. Well, Purim is a celebration that includes public gift giving. It has all of the elements of what we read about that in Revelation. And I've always thought, you know, even when I was a kid reading Re- Revelation, I always thought that's weird gift giving. That's so weird. Uh, and once again, like Dr. Heiser says, if it's weird, it's important. But um, it's a weird detail that it's gift giving. I mean, think about when when we finally got Osama bin Laden. You know, we were we were all happy. We didn't give gifts, though. So it seems like an odd detail. I think it's possible it might be pointing to uh, Purim. Um, now, think of the irony. Purim was started to celebrate Israel being free from a, t- a tyrannical ruler, Haman, a picture of the Antichrist. So if this is correct, then at this time, they will be celebrating Purim to honor another 
tyrannical ruler, the Antichrist, which totally flips the meaning of uh, Purim around during that time. But we know that uh, we know what their rebellion gets them because, again, right after that is a huge earthquake that destroys a tenth of the city and kills uh, 7,000, it says. Uh, so the um, what is the seventh seal uh, and uh, the Day of Atonement, the Abomination of Desolation, what do they all have in common? Yeah, this is another really fun one, too. It, it's it's so interesting how this all connects with this one missing element of this, this Essene calendar. Um, so I believe that there's a reason to believe that these all happen on the same time. Uh, we get the, the seventh seal, the Day of Atonement, and the Abomination of Desolation. So Revelation 8 describes the breaking of the seventh seal. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls say that angels perform duties in the heavenly temple at the same time as humans are supposed to be following uh, the, the, the same duties on the earthly temple. That's why it was so important for the priest to get everything right and do, to do it on the correct day. Um, and that's why that calendar is, is so important. So in Revelation, we see scenes of angels actually performing heavenly temple duties. That was another thing I never knew what that was even about, but it, it makes sense now. So when the abomination of desolation occurs in Revelations or in Revelation, the angels are performing duties that sound a lot like what used to be done on the Day of Atonement. Uh, also, using the Essene calendar, the prophetic day counts work out perfectly for this event to occur on exactly that day. Uh, and this also might explain what that silence of half an hour is in heaven. Uh, there's John says that, that when this happens, when the seal breaks, there's a silence for half an hour. Well, why is that? That could be when the Antichrist is desecrating the temple. So these things start to line up uh, in, in these calendar days. It's fascinating. Um. What are some of the best pieces of evidence for a, a pre-trib rapture that um, we might not be aware of? Sure, and you know, I'll, I'll, pref- I'll preface this by saying I, I don't, I don't ever argue about this. Christians of all rapture camps are Christians. I don't think it's a salvation issue. To me, it's just a fun topic. I, I, don't, I don't hold any animosity towards any of the other groups. Uh, but one that I find really interesting is the identity of the 24 elders. So um, if we can show that the 24 elders are actually Christians in resurrected body bodies, then, I mean, that's a slam dunk for the pre-trib view because John goes up and uh, they're already there. John describes the 24 elders before Jesus or even the seven sealed scroll um, come, in, come into the picture. So I, I lay it all out in the book, but when you match the description of what the what Christians are promised to inherit, described in the first three chapters, it mirrors perfectly with how the 24 elders are described. And to me, again, that's like too big of a coincidence. I mean, uh, if it's not that, I, I don't know how else to make sense of, uh, of, of those two things. Uh, you also write about uh, a messenger of or sorry, uh, or messenger, a resurgence of witchcraft uh, that will occur um, after the, um, what is it called? The retainer? The restrainer. restrainer. What, is yep. the, what does that mean, the restrainer? Uh, there's a lot of different ideas about it. Um, I believe that when, when it talks about the restrainer, it's, it's talking about something from one of Paul's letters. He says that the Antichrist won't come until he is he who restrains is taken out of the way. I believe that's the Holy Spirit in believers, but there's other ideas about what that means. So in, in what supernatural ways then is the world going to, uh, to change after the rapture? Well, if I'm, if I'm right, if the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, uh, and I believe it is, um, we're right now we're used to living in a, a materialistic world where magic isn't really seen or believed in among the general public. It's not like, I mean, of course there's always witchcraft and stuff, but I mean, it's not like a spectacle that everybody can see. And we just know that magic is around. We don't, we don't live in that kind of world. Um, now I believe that the, like I said, the Holy spirit is the restrainer that's removed with us attached at the rapture. Um, now, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of intense magic from, from evil people, like Pharaoh's magicians, for example. And there are even ancient Christian records of the decline of witchcraft around uh, Christians. And th- this, is, this is weird. The, the witchcraft would just not work around Christians in the beginning of the church. We have uh, records from Lactantius and Eusebius that uh, show an account of when the false god Apollo was compelled only by the presence of Christians who have the Holy Spirit to actually tell the truth and admit he was demonic. And I have that all in the book. It's fascinating. So I think 
the restrainer is restraining that magic. After the restrainer is removed during the tribulation, we read that people are involved with witchcraft and sorcery again. They don't repent of their witchcraft and sorceries. So imagine how convincing it would be if a world that has never seen real magic all of a sudden uh, sees it in an individual claiming to be the savior of humanity, but he's really the Antichrist. So I believe that we're going to see an actual resurgence of that after the rapture once that restrainer is removed. Are there anything in the uh, commentaries by the Essenes about an Antichrist? There's a, a very small, uh, there, there's a very little, there's very little bits. <laughs> and, it, and even then it's really speculative because th- they don't say Antichrist. Um, you know, they, they have other, other terms that, and a lot of times they don't even use man of sin or man of perdition. Uh, there are evil kings and in, in, in what seem to be prophecies throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's hard to know if it's a prophecy of a future Antichrist or if it's uh, a history uh, or a telling of something that's going on in their time with an evil king. So right now, I, I, I don't know. There might be quite a bit in there. It just depends on how those types of passages are meant to be interpreted. And um, when we read about the millennial age in the Old Testament, there are, there are sacrifices and, and, and festivals going on. Do the Dead Sea Scrolls shed any light on why there are sacrifices after Jesus returns? I mean, that's the old yeah. covenant, right? Sacrifices are the old covenant. Yeah, well, it's actually now we would be in temple law. So the book of Ezekiel um, at the very end, uh, chapters 40 through 48, ex- uh, talks about this millennial temple, this millennial world. And at the end, near the end, God tells him to, to say that this is the, te- the law of the temple. So before it was the law of the Torah. Now we're under the law of Christ. And apparently in the millennial reign, it'll be the law of the temple. Um, so the sacrifices, while it's similar to the law or to the to Torah, it's not exactly the same. Also, uh, in, it, we have to remember that the millennial king, uh, kingdom, it's a mixed crowd of angels, sinless humans and new bodies and those who survived the tribulation, but who are still normal, mortal human beings with a sin nature. Um, as long as they're believers and they survive, they, they're allowed in. But Ezekiel 44 says that the priests who perform the sacrifices in the millennium are able to marry. They have, they have parents who can die. Uh, they present sin offerings and they even sweat. Uh, so these are humans, not glorified uh, human beings. These are humans who have not been resurrected performing these duties, but uh, they are humans that are living in a brand new world that isn't subject to the same sin and death curse that it is now. So it's, it stands the reason that these humans after hundreds of years would eventually forget what, what it took to get them here. You know, uh, the sacrifice that was made that might be part of why they're sacrifices. Um, But we have to remember too, sacrifices were in the old Testament were never meant for salvation. Uh, and Hebrews says that, that they were never meant to be understood as providing salvation. They got salvation through faith, like Abraham, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So salvation has worked the same among all the ages, and it'll be the same in the millennial kingdom, too. They'll have to have their faith in Christ and be a follower of Christ uh, to, to be saved. So the sacrifices were never about that. The sacrifices were mainly about atonement with God so that when God came down, they would have this kind of spiritual protection against immediate swift justice. Um, And that's probably why, you know, no man can see God and live. It's because of our sin. So the same problem is going to occur in the millennial uh, time that occurred all throughout human history. It's just a different era and a different way of doing things. So, uh, yeah, I believe that the sacrifices are literal, and I think that they perform a function similar to the Old Testament, but a, a little bit different. And Ezekiel 40 through 48 uh, goes into great detail about that. Uh, there was, you, you mentioned earlier, one of the uh, three Jewish sects. I think it was the, was it the Sadducees or the Pharisees who really didn't believe in, a, in an afterlife? Yeah, Sadducees, they, they shed off a lot of their beliefs. They didn't believe in angels. Um, they, they really abandoned a lot of that stuff because they were just more concerned about making their, their physical lives while they're here as comfortable as, as possible. So uh, what did the Essenes tell us in their commentaries about their, their view of the afterlife? 
actually it goes right in line with uh, what's taught in the Old Testament. So it would it would be that there was a place called Abraham's bosom, which was kind of like an Old Testament version of heaven, but it wasn't exactly heaven because at that time no human being was uh, permitted in heaven yet. So you know there was this the Sheol, but um, it was a, a, like a great chasm divided these two places. There's uh, Abraham's bosom or, or paradise. And then there was basically what we would consider hell. It was a, it was a holding place for people to be judged who were eventually going to be in the lake of fire. Um, so everything that I've read so far about the, the Essene view of the afterlife, it, was, it, it, it falls in line with that. But they also had this expectation that something was going to change, that, that something was going to change Jesus or you know, the Messiah was going to provide a way to reconcile humanity back to God. And they were looking forward to that age because then they could get saved. And then, you know, when they, when they died, they could go to heaven. Uh, are there any sects in, in um, Israel or, or Jordan who sort of identify themselves as modern day Essenes? There's a few out there, uh, but not a whole lot is known about them. And there's even a lot in this country. And I, I would say all of the, the there's people calling themselves a scenes that it's not it's more like Gnosticism. It's not truly a scene um, right now. I don't I don't there's not as far as I know, it would ha- it would have to be really small because I, I I'm not aware I'm not aware of it. But I don't think that there's a, a community of like a scene still living in Israel. I think um, the the believers left and then the ones that stayed behind the unbelief, if there were unbelieving Essenes that didn't accept the Messiah. Uh, I, I believe that, that when um, 72 AD, when the temple was destroyed, they, they would have been wiped out because it was a massive slaughter. So I think anybody left behind uh, would have been killed. I mean, Paul even said in the I believe in, in, Oh, maybe the, maybe that was Hebrews, but uh, in one of the new Testament books, uh, he's the writer is pleading with the priest to, to get out, come leave, go to the nations, become a Christian, you know, uh, because we know that this, this major destruction is coming uh, and, and no one's going to survive it. So most likely there, if there were anybody calling themselves a scenes, it would be somebody who like adopted it later, um, but it wouldn't have been remnants from the, the, the original scene community. So what's, what's the, the, the final takeaway then for, for Christians uh, with regards to the Essenes and the uh, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, one of the one of the biggest reasons that I wrote this book is because this is this is like hidden, unknown Jewish history. So there are Jewish people right now that um, believe all, all it all it is is really just the Orthodox and Pharisee and uh, where where all that came from. But there's this whole section of Jewish history that has been uh, completely unknown up until really, really recently. So right now in our day, um, most Jewish people are either secular or Orthodox, which again comes from the, uh, from Pharisee teachings. And they, they don't even know that there's another option. Um, Not many of them. Then there is an extremely rich history full of honor and obedience to God. That's completely 100% Jewish. And unfortunately, most Jewish people today don't have access to, to their own history. So if we can help Jewish people reclaim their history, they'll be more likely to consider Jesus because the Essenes immediately knew who Jesus was when he came and accepted him. So uh, I, th- I think helping, helping them out with say, like read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you got some heritage there. And uh, if they read that, they'll, they'll see that it, it, it fits really, really perfectly with Jesus. So uh, it's, a, it's a good ministry effort, but even for nothing else, I mean, they, they should be able to have access to their, their history. All right, Josh Peck, The Lost Prophecies of Qumran 2025 and the Final Age of Man. Once again, how do we get a copy? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me back on again. It's always good talking with you. People can go to skywatchtvstore.com. That's the best place to get it because it comes in a package with another amazing book by Dr. Ken Johnson, all about Dead Sea Scroll stuff. Uh, And if you could leave me a review, an honest review on Amazon, that would be great. Fantastic. Josh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. When we come back, we'll reach out to Warsaw and speak with writer-translator Adam Borofsky about paranormal Poland.
Don't go away. We've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto. But did you know it's easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that the YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest as you simply do what he does. Let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put in $100 into each one, it would now be worth over $53,000. So if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. You'll not only find proof of everything I've said, but listeners get full access for just $1. You can't find this offer anywhere else, but act fast because the offer ends soon. That's copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. Don't take this offer lightly. He's the real deal. Go visit the site now. Have you subscribed to my newsletter yet? It's fast, easy, and absolutely free. Just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and then click on subscribe. All I need is your email address, and that's it. Then, once a month, you'll receive my newsletter, Inner Sanctum, in your email inbox. The Inner Sanctum contains a monthly brief, a column of my analysis of the news and opinions. There's a This Month in UFO or Conspiracy History, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of this radio program, a book club, my podcast pick of the month, a spotlight on a previous guest, and much more. Join the Strange Planet community by signing up for your free subscription to Inner Sanctum. Again, go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on subscribe. It's a strange planet. Read all about it. If you're a fan of this radio program and the Strange Planet podcast, why not show it off by wearing Strange Planet apparel or drinking from a Strange Planet mug? Check out all the great Strange Planet merch in my Strange Planet shop. Just go to the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on Shop in the menu. There's a huge selection of men's and women's t-shirts. You like crop circles or the Mayan calendar? Gotcha covered. Are you into the Anunnaki? Wait till you see these designs. My favorite right now, lions do not lose sleep over the opinions of sheep. And one of our bestsellers right now, Truth Gets You Crucified on the front and a passage from Matthew chapter 23 on the back. So many great t-shirt designs, I don't know where to begin. There's women's leggings and tote bags and, of course, mugs. Great gifts for family and friends who listen and love this show. My Strange Planet shop. Visit today and often. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and check it out. The truth will set you free. Free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We're going to explore paranormal Poland, and we've reached out to Warsaw, Poland. And uh, Adam Borowski is a translator, writer, author of an upcoming book called Euthanizers. He'll tell us a little bit about that. And uh, we're going to get into some urban legends in Poland, haunted locations, UFOs, missing people, and more. Adam Borowski, welcome. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. There's a book called Warsaw's Urban Legends, and it was written by Marek Dabrowski. There's a, a story in there. This is one of the top legends, I understand, in, in all of Poland. It's called the Black Volga. What is a Black Volga? Yeah, the Black Volga is a car, as the name suggests, right? Because the, the car and this car it was driven or by, there, there are various um, uh, expressions here, various uh, thoughts, who, who, was, who was the driver, right? Some say it was a Satan, some say it was just some kind of uh, uh, or, organ trafficking, perhaps. Uh, so various uh, drivers, various mysterious people behind it. And basically, this Volga, this car, Whoever was driving it was kidnapping children uh, to take them to Germany for organ harvesting or to some other places in the West. That was the general idea. So, um, and of course, it connects with vampires and, you know, in a way with uh, missing 411. Uh, so it's a fascinating case uh, because of that. But I guess it could reflect the, um, 
you know, the times, right, of the communism, uh, which, of course, uh, was paranoia of, um, uh, you know, people disappearing and the general uh, paranoia of the times. The Black Volga was a, a Russian-made car, I guess. It was very popular with the communist elite. They would drive kind of like a Cadillac. Right, exactly. And, um, of course, it's no, no secret that um, the organ trafficking, you know, human trafficking, the urban legends associated with that, linked to that, were quite popular at that time, especially, you know, a French Westerner is coming to Poland and needing a new kidney or some sort of organ. And, of course, this Black Volga was um, basically responsible for providing them w- with that, right? So this Black Volga was like a symbol of uh, some kind of mysterious force that was there to um, kidnap people so they could be used for organ harvesting and etc. Right. And uh, when was this taking place in Warsaw? Well, that was before the fall of communism. So basically until 1989. Then it's kind of funny because the cars changed, the more modern cars, right? But the Black Volga was basically around until 1989 when the real changes started happening, of course, in Poland and indeed the uh, region here in Europe and the Soviet bloc and the surrounding countries. So, um, But this legend is still around, just not the Volga anymore. You're probably going to get a Mercedes, you know, more modern cars now because, of course, we are in a different era. But the idea is the same, that there is this force this mysterious driver who abducts people, mainly children, uh, for organ harvesting and sometimes even human trafficking, right? So this is the, um, the idea behind it. There's a legend about a, a flickering lamppost. And again, this dates back to uh, the communist era. And uh, so tell me about this flickering lamppost in the city. Yeah, apparently this flickering lamppost, this wasn't random, right? This flickering. There was some sort of code, possibly Morse code. It was uh, used by agents, some say Soviet spies, uh, some say maybe even American spies. It's a really interesting case. But of course, you know, with flickering lights, uh, you can't really tell whether there is something to it or not, because lights can flicker for all sorts of reasons, especially in a communist country uh, where, you know, Things aren't exactly operating as they should. So um, I wouldn't really put that much stock into this particular legend, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. So there's this blue skyscraper in, uh, in Warsaw, in uh, Bankowy Square. And yeah. uh, it's, it's this huge edifice. It's got these reflexive glass panels. They reflect the blue of the sky. So that's why it's called the blue skyscraper, obviously. Correct. Yeah. 1991. How does this relate to this urban legend of the rabbi's curse? Right. Well, that's a really interesting story because Warsaw, as some of your listeners may not know, or in Poland before the war, there was a major Jewish presence here before 1939, September 1939. Warsaw's population was one third Jewish. So uh, 1,300,000 people. So that was a lot. uh, But, you know, when you can, when you take one third of that. Now, considering this, uh, the synagogue, one of the biggest synagogues in the world was located in Warsaw at the time. And it was destroyed in, on my 16th of May, May 16th, 1933. 43. Yeah. 43. Sorry. Yes. That's correct. And, uh, you know, decades later, uh, this skyscraper, was, well, they started building it, but they couldn't really complete it. They couldn't finish it because there were always some problems. Something was missing. There was someone killed and so on. And some people speculated that perhaps maybe this rabbi had cursed this plot of land, you know, as a revenge, as a revenge of sorts that, you know, someone would want to desecrate this area that was sacred. And now they're just building this skyscrapers, this skyscraper, this abomination. But it stopped after a while, this curse, it seems. The activity, the paranormal activity around the area, and indeed in the building, some say even in the building, there were some kind of strange phenomena, like, for example, floating uh, items and so on. But apparently... Now it's uh, pretty calm. It stopped. Some speculate that some say that because of the uh, plaque that was put uh, in front of the building or on the building uh, commemorating the synagogue, that maybe that was the reason why it stopped. But the fact is, for now, it's been uh, now it's uh, relatively calm. Nothing is going on. there. 
Well, sticking with World War II in Warsaw for a moment, there is another uh, legend linked to World War II, and it revolves around an, an apparition of a lady clad in a white dress supposedly haunting the beautiful uh, neoclassical villa uh, in Warsaw on Morski Oko Street. Tell me about it. Yeah, as you know, or some of your listeners, again, may not know, Warsaw was destroyed in the Second World War. 85% of the city was razed to the ground by the Nazis. And there was a lot of fighting, and especially young people were very, very active. And there are many legends, for example, uh, Girl Scouts were really active at that time as well. And in this case, there was this young girl, maybe she was a scout, maybe not, we don't know that, but she hid in this villa, in this beautiful house, and she was staying there for a while, and she saw this uh, handsome young gentleman, and she, uh, uh, well, wanted to uh, get out of the house and see where he was, and that's when she was shot, or there was a stray bullet. The point is, she died. And this apparition, this ghost, uh, Hannah's ghost, uh, is now haunting the area. Uh, she's not very aggressive, apparently. She's just walking around. And I remember this case pretty well because actually that was one of the cases I have covered uh, for the local television here. So uh, it's a really interesting case. But as far as I know, she has never been recorded in any way. There were just there are just rumors, right? That this is what happened. So this this villa, this place is definitely um, it's imbued with his history. There is no doubt about it. And um yeah, it's one of these interesting cases that you have many, many in Warsaw because of the tragic history of the city. I always say that if there is a psychic, because sometimes I listen to psychics who say that, uh, you know, they can sense or see dead people. I cannot imagine, Richard, what they would be seeing here in Warsaw, where you had 200,000 people, civilians, killed in terrible ways, terrible, absolutely terrible ways. Ghost hunting uh, programs are very popular in North America on television. Are they Are they also popular in, in Poland? Yes, they are, but I wouldn't say they are as popular as in the U.S. because obviously uh, Poland is, um, well, smaller. And Poland is still a Catholic in many ways, right? So um, I think there's a certain, um, people have a certain... Uh, well, they don't like they don't like talking about it that much because some people see it as maybe evil, maybe you know demonic. So um, yes, it's popular. But let's take Halloween as an example, right? Just to give you an idea of what I mean. Of course, people celebrate it, but there are many people in Poland who tell you who are going to tell you, well, no, it's not our. Uh, we we shouldn't uh, celebrate this. We have our own holidays. We have our own celebrations, uh, and we should not, uh, you know just cater or think about this or uh, just uh, look at to the West, right? That's basically the message here. So I think it's the same with uh, ghost shows. These shows are kind of different uh, because of tragic Polish history, mainly, right? You have so many uh, cases here, as I said, with, with Warsaw, for example, and you don't really have that in America for obvious reasons. So yes, uh, it's popular, but you need to remember that, um, Many people see this as sort of uh, evil, maybe demonic because of religious undertones. Adam, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and continue to uh, delve into paranormal Poland with writer, translator, author Adam Borowski. Stay with us. A trusted sponsor of my show, GetTheTea.com, is having their summer sale. Hey guys, let's talk about Father's Day. What kind of gift would you like to give your dad? Why not think about a gift that would help his digestion? Remember, Life Change Tea is an amazing gentle cleanse that he can use daily for gut health. Who doesn't need that? I know I do. I drink it every day. It comes in three different flavors, natural, peppermint, and my favorite, pomegranate. You need to try it. The combination of 12 herbs just does a beautiful number on my insides. Right now, they're having their big summer sale. Buy three, get one free. That's right, buy three, get one free. Life Change Tea is not a fad. They've been around since 2007 helping thousands of people, and it's made right in the USA. It's easy to brew, keep it in your fridge, and you drink it daily. It's summertime, and I always want to have a big glass of iced tea. That's why I drink Life Change Tea. Buy now and get one month of tea for free. 
Go to getthetea.com forward slash Richard to order yours today. Use the code Richard10 to get an additional $10 off plus free shipping. That's over $50 in savings. Again, that's getthetea.com forward slash Richard and use the code Richard and the number 10, Richard10 for $10 more plus free shipping. Don't miss out. You can become an official Patreon supporter of my work here at Strange Planet Productions by donating a monthly amount through patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several tiers to choose from. Pick which one is right for you, but any monthly amount is greatly appreciated. As a sign of my appreciation, you can have your name mentioned on air during my weekly radio show, or you could have your name included in a crawl on my YouTube channel live stream. You could also receive episodes Episodes of my old podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. This critically acclaimed podcast, produced in partnership with Chris Jericho, is not currently available anywhere else. If you enjoy this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you can really get behind me and my work by donating once a month at patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Welcome back. Adam Borofsky stays with us from Warsaw. We're talking paranormal Poland. How about for you, uh, Adam? Any um, paranormal activity in your life? Yeah, there was some some interesting cases. Um, well, there was one particularly interesting case uh, of um, ghost. Apparently, there was a ghost or is a ghost at an abandoned uh, police station. And I had a chance to talk to a detective uh, who didn't really believe that, but his friend apparently had seen this, uh, this, this supposedly this ghost. So this was interesting to me because, you know, police officers aren't known for making things up most of the time. So it was very, very different than just some uh, witness or someone like that. I did have an interesting EVP recorded as well uh, about 15 years ago, uh, which was a voice. It was addressing me directly. And there is no way it was, uh, you know, it was um, someone walking around or just some kind of person. No, it was definitely uh, some kind of unnatural voice. It was a floating voice. It was a woman's voice. It was like someone floating away. And there is no way that she was anywhere near me at that time. So, because I, I checked it many times, I went over this, this I'd gone over this scenario many times and really interesting. And it really gave me a, a chills, right? Because it was, because um, she was d- addressing me directly. And that was really, really fascinating to me. I was really skeptical about, you know, EVPs and uh, all this stuff. But then after that, there's definitely something to it. Well, but what, in ter- what were the yeah. circumstances in, under which you recorded this EVP? Where were you and, and what happened? I was here. There's a huge graveyard, a huge cemetery here, Povonsky. It's in Warsaw. It's a really fascinating place. Uh, there were huge fights happening there, huge battles um, in the Second World War. Uh, like I said, with the uh, young Polish people fighting Nazis, uh, Nazi Germany, or um, Nazis in general. And there was a lot of fighting going on there because, of course, they were hiding there. The young Poles were hiding there. Uh, you know, so it was a, uh, it's a huge cemetery. Uh, I went there around the time of Halloween. But here in Poland, we have the All Souls Day, you know, more the Slavic tradition. So instead of what, what's happening in the West, what, what people do in the West, like, you know, they uh, trick and treat and so on. Here it's more, as it's usually the case uh, uh, in Poland, with Poland, uh, it's more solemn. It's more, uh, let's say, you know, this kind of sad, right? Uh, you do remember your uh, ancestors, yes, but it's more like in terms of uh, going to the grave and just standing there and uh, and talking about this person, you know, that had passed away. So it's kind of different. Um, so so I went to the cemetery. You know, I had this small mic because it was uh, even then it was this kind of technology was different. But I had this small mic uh, on me, and I was just um, I just. Uh, let's say had this suggestion or this made this suggestion, this mental suggestion that if there is anything there, let it uh, record itself. Right. And this voice had imprinted itself. Let's put it this way uh, on my recorder. It wasn't even a digital recorder. It was some kind of, you know, very, very old recorder. And it was, um, 
Well, a really interesting case, no doubt about it. But again, if I played it to someone without this context, without being there, it means nothing, right? Because these experiences, you need to be there and experience them yourself, which is why um, I know it's real because I experienced it. I've uh, recorded this. And there was definitely intelligence behind it. And there is no way it's been said by anyone around me at the time. It's like this voice has inserted itself at a specific moment when it knew when to, when to do it, which is amazing. And that's, well, that's why I know EVPs are very much a reality. What's behind them? I have no idea. You no, know, it depends on your belief system, but this is definitely uh, fascinating. But in terms of paranormal, as in, you know, some people talk about being taken to spaceships and so on. I would never make that claim. Even if something like this happened to me, I would never say it openly because uh, without evidence, without proof, you know, I'm the kind of person that I don't think it would make any sense, right? I know there are people claiming all sorts of things, but in my opinion, based on my experiences, if someone really had gone through an experience like that, it's highly unlikely that they would have, uh, you know, talked talked about it because from a psychological point of view, from a psychological standpoint, I just don't think it's logical. But again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, people that talk about alien abductions and so on, maybe there is indeed, you know, maybe, it's, maybe it's what happened to them, right? But when I imagine myself in that scenario, psychological level of, psycholo- level of uh, shock, I don't think that it's that easy, right? Because it's absolutely, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Well, traumatized. You're traumatized. Yeah, a lot yeah of, exactly. It can, change, so. it can change your entire view of reality, and that's too much for some people to be able to process. Yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. And I just don't think that uh, people that talk about it openly, well, some could say, well, yeah, because it's their method of coping. But I'm more inclined to believe, uh, you know, there are cases of people who just uh, shut down. They didn't want to talk about anything of the sort of this kind of stuff. I'm more inclined to believe that people have really powerful experiences involving the paranormal or some kind of, you know, paranormal related I think it's highly unlikely that they would be talking about it openly. It can happen, but it's um, highly unlikely, in my opinion. All right, Adam, stay put. We'll be back on the other side with more on Paranormal Poland. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We are back with Adam Borowski, writer, translator, on the line from Warsaw, Poland, and we're talking Paranormal Poland. Let's set aside the paranormal for a moment, Adam, and there is so much tragedy that has occurred in Poland over its history. Talk to me about some locations in Poland that that are tied to some of these tragedies during the Second World War. We could talk about one place here, if you don't mind, just nearby. It's also a very interesting place. It's called Zofiówka. It was, uh, before the Second World War, it was a hospital for um, Jews with mental problems. The Second World War, first you had the T4 action. Now, T4 was basically euthanasia by Nazi. Nazi Germany had this program of euthanasia of the so-called undesirables, right? T4. And it was um, done throughout Germany, of course, and uh, in occupied areas. So that's what they did here. Some of the doctors, they actually killed themselves in protest because they knew it was going to happen to their patients. So they said, no, we don't like this. And they committed suicide in, in protest. And then you had Lebensborn. Lebensborn was an organization that was responsible for the forced Germanization of Polish kids or some Polish kids that were deemed to be Aryan, right? Aryan characteristics. So that there was then, then you had after T4, you had this uh, Lebensborn program. Now, what's interesting about this place is that there is a very strong paranormal angle there. So when you enter this, this hospital, or it, it's no longer a hospital, but, but it's still the building is still there, there are really strange drawings on the walls. So it's, the atmosphere is just eerie. It's a really strange place. And I have no doubt whatsoever that it, someone were to conduct or you know, record EVPs there, I'm sure you would get a great, great results. No doubt whatsoever, given this place's history, absolutely a crazy history, even for Polish standards. And I'm sure you would get really, really interesting results. And um, it's a great place in terms of, you know, urban exploration and the paranormal. But in terms of the history, absolutely tragic, tragic and uh, just shows you the level of depravity that humans are capable of. I want to talk about 
Wolf Gregorievich Messing. Um, oh, yes. Now he, he was actually, he was a Russian, wasn't he? He was Polish. He was Russian. He was Jewish, you know, because Poland was controlled, uh, you know, the Russian Empire was uh, controlled by Russia for a long time. So at that time, it was part of Russian Empire. So he was uh, three things, uh, three nationalities at the same time. So Polish, Jewish, and Russian, or Soviet to be more precise. Yeah, he claimed to have the power to project any kind of image uh, he wanted to uh, you to see. So, for example, there is this story that Stalin told, asked him, okay, you're so great, messing. Okay, here's what I want you to do. You are to enter my villa, and if you can do this, I'll believe you. And apparently... In other, words, messing, is, in other words, sneak past the guards disguised, exactly. project, projecting another image. He could make people believe he was whoever... Beria wanted them and to the chief of police that was absolutely a monster and they they saw the guards swore they saw Beria he was the chief of police so uh, truly an amazing story whether Messing really had these powers well we don't know but he was famous and he basically claimed that uh, he could you know, like he was the mentalist, the ultimate mentalist. He uh, could uh, make you believe that, let's say, you were holding paper and there was actually, uh, you know, a lot of money. Uh, so really, a really interesting individual. Messing became Stalin's personal wizard, I understand? Yes. And Stalin apparently was uh, afraid of Messing. Apparently, Stalin was afraid of Messing, which was, uh, well, this was quite a feat, if that's if that's true. And apparently, Hitler hated Messing because Messing... Uh, prophesized or predicted that Hitler would be uh, destroyed when he turned east. But of course, you, you know, you could say that was just a savvy political uh, prediction. Uh, so I guess that's possible too. Yeah. And of course, uh, Messing was Jewish. So obviously, you know, I don't need to explain that and tell you that the Nazi ideology, well, that was the problem, right? Uh, so obviously Messing was uh, avoiding uh, uh, Nazi Germany, like the plague for obvious reasons. So, um, yeah, it's for a very interesting story. And there's another story we could talk about, Richard, uh, Stefan Ossowiecki. Uh, oh, this Polish. is the gentleman that predicted his own death. That's right. He predicted his own death in the Warsaw Uprising. He was an engineer and apparently, uh, you know, he was famous before the war. Uh, Sigmund Freud knew about him or was friends with him apparently albert einstein so he was well known in in you know before the war and yes he was an engineer so he wasn't just some you know person that making things up in the sense that he understood the uh, very basis of how how the things work and this gave him credibility of course and he yes he said that his body was never going to be found and he even specified the date when he was going to get killed or he was going to be killed but again whether that was actually the case, you know, Warsaw Uprising, that was the beginning of the Warsaw Uprising, chaos, uh, Germans burning buildings to the ground. Well, not at that point, but but close. So, you know, it's not very difficult to predict, yeah, my, you're not going to find my body. I mean, that, that scenario, just imagine the Ukraine now, right? Um, it's not exactly a prediction, but... Uh, he was definitely famous at the time before the war and during the war. And so, yeah, it's a really interesting, really interesting person because, you know, Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, I don't think that they would, uh, they wouldn't have been fascinated by this individual, by this, uh, by this man, if there wasn't, hadn't been something to his claims, right? As you say, he may have been killed by the Gestapo during the Warsaw Uprising, and that's why, you know, his, yeah, body, that, his body was that's, done. But- that's the story, Richard. But again, given the chaos, we don't really know, right? Because there was so much chaos going on that that's the story is that Gestapo got to him. But whether that's actually what happened, we just don't know. You know, it's, as I said, 200,000 civilians dead. So you can imagine the level of chaos we're talking about, the mayhem. Uh, so, yeah, the, but the story is that, um, yeah, that he was killed by the Gestapo, yes. What about his psychic abilities? What can you tell us uh, about his uh, clairvoyance? Yeah, he could predict the future, apparently. He could tell with uh, incredible accuracy, you know, some events from people's lives that, you know, they never shared with anyone, uh, stuff like that. So um, it was definitely interesting uh, for people. But again, some people claimed that, you know, basically he was a clever psychologist. He could uh, see things, notice things, kind of like missing. Uh, Wolf Wolf Messing, the previous uh, gentleman we talked about. So, yeah, it was um, 
again, it's very it's hard to really tell whether this was genuine because some would say that it's just a conjuring tricks, like you know he was uh, kind of like a psychic that was uh, a pretend psychic that would you know kind of move chairs, you know, or something like that. But you know, it's definitely someone that uh, has a place in history, right? Let's let's put it this way. Well, by the way, just uh, one important thing i guess uh, that he could have or he could do or he claimed to do he could see objects in sealed containers and he could travel outside the body and there was actually one friend that said um, that he could uh, talk about this conversation this friend was having but again uh this is all rumors right just like the, the this 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 part with his body um, not being found because remember the chaos at that time I would love to believe this is a real you know psychic that he was a real psychic but again uh, given how things are and how things were I, I'm kind of skeptical right Adam Borowski translator writer and author living in uh, Warsaw Poland you have a you've been working on a new book a piece of fiction and it's uh, called euthanizers and can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure, Richard. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. Right. So um, euthanizers are basically individuals that, you know, the concept we know from history and from science fiction in general that want to steal other people's lives, uh, what I call dimensional one percenters. So they see someone who has a better life and they analyze this other, that they're double. So their counterpart in this other universe that they want to live in, they analyze everything about this person. And then they just cross over and they kill this individual in ways that doesn't leave a trace. And then this, the body of this individual is thrown back to the or the dimension they came from. But the idea, the overarching idea, because euthanizers are just part of it, is the demiurge, of course. I'm fascinated by the concept of the soul trap, right? That the light that people talk about, that it's this great light, that it's actually a trap. Again, this concept has been around for thousands of years, probably. So I'm fascinated by the demiurge. So actually my novel is told from the point of view of the demiurge. And euthanizers are a part of it. And there are some uh, funny parts involving various nations getting punished. Uh, I'm deliberately being vague because I think it's an interesting story to read. And uh, I really think it has potential. And I'm not just saying it because, you know, I've, I've written it. So, you know, that's I'm just uh, stroking my own ego. No, I think it really has potential. And I'm really, really happy because, uh, yeah, uh, with, with with what I'm, you know, what I've what I've written, basically. Euthanizers and uh, by Adam Borowski. You're looking for a publisher, and people can find out more information. And I guess read uh, read some snippets from the book at Escaping Hazmat Demons. That's the Facebook page, Escaping Hazmat Demons, right? And they can contact you via email Adam Borowski. That's B O R O W S K I. Adam. Dot Borofsky, B-O-R-O-W-S-K-I, 1985 at gmail.com. And I'll put the, uh, the, fi- the link to the Facebook page and your email address in the episode notes. Okay, Adam. Richard, that's, that's great. Thanks. Thanks again. It's, uh, it's been a nice chat, uh, this different Polish perspective. All right. That's it for me. Thanks to Carlos and Ryan back next week as we take a look at the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in and cover-up with U.S. Attorney John O'Connor. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca.